Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 72, your Fiesta flight to Mexico and the ancient pyramids, now departing at gate 19. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. Think a funny thought. Think a funny thought. Or a sunny word. Or a sunny word. That will make me happy, little orange girl. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Shining at the end of every day. There's a WW Radio. You're in Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 222 for the week of May 15th, 2011. I'll continue with my conversation from last week with author and director Jeff Curdy. We'll discuss his involvement as content consultant of the Walt Disney Family Museum, his latest book on the Disney dream, What's Coming Next?, and additional stories about Walt Disney, his legacy, and much more. Stay tuned for some announcements before I play some more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Yeah, and Jeff, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was the Walt Disney Family Museum. You were the creative director, the content consultant, the media producer, many, many roles, again, that you had with that. And I know that when it was first announced, a lot of people talked about, you know, why it was in San Francisco and not near Disneyland. And and I think what the message that you and the, the museum has really wanted to stress is that people need to understand that this museum is about Walt Disney, the person, the family man, the son, the father, the husband, and not Walt Disney, the brand name. And I have to assume that with that, it had to present both opportunity for you as well as challenge for you on a lot of levels, including, uh, you know, gathering a lot of the artifacts and how to present them. Well, it was an interesting sort of culmination to a whole lot of, you know, Disney nerd dreams come true and you sort of realize one day you're sitting at your dining room table with Walt Disney's daughter and grandson and they're talking to you about how they need your help on this project that they've got in mind. And I keep thinking about that particular event over and over again and thinking, was that real? Did that really happen? Um, one of the great things about the museum w- was, as a project, Diane wanted to tell a story of her father that was dimensional, that was not a simple sort of statistical restatement of his career, which is really easy to do because Walt was so much of his work and vice versa that it's really easy to fall into sort of a chronological description of the stuff he did. And what the desire was with the museum was to pull it back. And we would repeat over and over sort of little mantras as we developed the exhibit and worked on the content, which was, where's Walt? Was sort of the rallying cry all the time. Because you would have people who would get off and get fascinated by an aspect of the story that really had little to do with Walt himself. The other sort of mantra we kept going through was we don't care about when, we don't care about what. We care more about why. Why was Walt the man he was? Why did he do the things he did? What were the characteristics of the man that drove him, that inspired him, that caused him to create these things that people like you and me and your listeners sort of continue to obsess about many decades after his passing. So um, for me, as a, as a, on the one hand, in my personal culture, as, as sort of a, a huge Disney fan, 
um, it was a, a, a gigantic flattering honor to be asked to be that primarily involved in this museum to a man I, of course, admire and, and really regard highly in terms of what he did and who he was. And then professionally, it meant I got to sort of touch every single thing I'd ever done between research and writing and, and interviewing and, and doing video and audio production and, and interacting with and assembling, working to help assemble this great team that came on board creatively, a, a, a great number of Disney aficionados, um, all united, honestly, by a passion about telling this guy's story in a way that he would be proud of. So it was me and Paula Sigmund Lowry and Bruce Gordon and, and uh, David Lesjack came in and helped. J.B. Kaufman was there. Um, sort of on and on down the line, all of these colleagues of, of ours from the Walt Disney Studio and Walt Disney Animation Studios and Walt Disney Imagineering and Disneyland and, you know, uh, the the... Gosh, the people in the film vault and the photo library and the art library and everybody sort of, of came out of the woodwork and really gave it a huge amount of, of effort and passion um, because we wanted to tell the story of Walt as best as it could be told. Um, another great asset that we had was that Walt was, it's like from... About 1925 on, I don't think a day went by that there wasn't a camera or a, or a movie camera pointed at him. Um, so there's still photography and film footage by the mile uh, of Walt Disney. In addition, there's a lot of audio recordings of Walt. Interviews, radio interviews, the lengthy interviews he did with Pete Martin for the uh, book that Diane uh, that came out under Diane's authorship, um, just a huge amount of Walt himself. So we were able to glean a huge amount of material so that in essence, as you pursue the exhibit, you get to hear and see Walt Disney a whole lot. Mm. Um, the way the uh, museum is presented, the way the exhibits uh, unfold, the way that multimedia audio and video elements are used was all aspiring to both support the story and to reflect the kind of combination of information and entertainment that Walt himself was famous for. So it was a, a, a complex project. There was a lot to it. There were a ton of people involved in it. Um, but in the end, I think the, the great thing is we opened on schedule. We've had a huge, I mean, an absolutely huge critical reaction. People absolutely love the place. And we actually came in under budget. And those things are always satisfying. Well, but, you know, through, through the whole process, though, I think maybe the greatest asset of all was, in, in a certain way, you had a sort of moral or conscience guide in Ron Miller and Diane Disney Miller and Walt Miller um, who were almost like the, the, the compass of the whole thing. Um, it was, it was ultimately sort of their vision and their guidance that made choices and selections and sort of knocked the rudder this way or that way. So that not only was it factually accurate and, and correct and interesting and all of the great stuff that you might expect, but it was also authentic to Walt Disney in a way that only, I think, only his family could really have guaranteed. Well, and as you were talking about sitting across a table from Diane Disney Miller, once again, Jeff, you know, the Disney geeks in all of us were very envious about a position that not many people get to be in. And it made me th start thinking about, again, that opportunity that you had to not only 
speak with his family, but obviously work with them in gathering Walt's personal effects, you know, touching the things that Walt touched from his childhood on. Uh, and so, not stealing any of them, which <laughs> I'm really proud of myself. You're, not, you're borrowing it. You have an ancillary museum in the Curdy estate. So. <laughs> this, is how, this is how truly stupid I am, because if I was a really bold criminal, but God bless him, the archives one day called, Robert Tiemann at the archives called, and he said, you know, I've been talking to Dave, and we have a couple of dozen plain old file boxes that just say Walt Personal on them. And we've had them stored in the annex for years, always with the intent that, hey, we need to give those back to Diane. But we've just never gotten around to it. So he said, I'm going to go over there and pull these things out. And if you'd take them, take them up to the foundation office and, and you know, sort of with our blessings and our, and our, uh, encouragement for this museum project. This is really, you know, where this stuff belongs. It's apparently all this stuff that was in the closets, the cupboards, the shelves of Walt's office when it was closed down and locked up in 1967. So in my little car, I drove over to the annex and I loaded up, you know, a, a dozen, 18, 20, I don't know how many of these little file box, cardboard boxes. And instead of taking them home and rooting through them and taking out the cool stuff that I wanted to keep, I idiotically drove them directly to Walt Miller. And I said, hey, Walter, look at this stuff. What's in it? I said, I don't really know. It just says Walt Personal on it. So we took it in the conference room of the foundation office, and he and I just started going through it. Reading glasses. Fountain pens. Notepads. Um, little sort of, there's a famous picture where he, Walt is holding sort of a plush toy of like Br'er Fox. It's very distinctive. It was that plush toy of mm. Br'er Fox that he obviously had somewhere <laughs> in his office. All sorts of little hand objects and things that would have come out of desk drawers. And then suddenly there's a shaving kit. And Walter takes it out and says, holy smokes, this is Grandpa's shaving kit from his office bathroom. And he opens it up, and he just gets this look on his face, and he says, oh, my God, it smells like Grandpa. <laughs> and that's one of those moments where you just sort of get goosebumps and say, oh, my. <laughs> this really is kind of a special thing. And, you know, the funny thing to find out, you know, we're showing some of this stuff to Diane, and we show her, you know, there's probably 10 or 12 pairs of those sort of dime store um, reading glasses. I call them old man glasses because I wear them a lot now when I have to read because my eyes are going. And she laughed and she said, oh, you have to just pick those up like every time we go to the, every time we go to the thrifty drug way home or something, he'd grab another pair of reading glasses because he was always leaving them somewhere or, or couldn't find them. <laughs> To, to find out those sort of little anecdotes about, you know, gee, my, my dad did that same thing. <laughs> inexpensive reading glasses at the drugstore. Um, it, it was just all kinds of things like that that happened. And, you know, then the cooperation from people at the company, I still, Ed Hobelman in the film vault was just so generous about helping us obtain high-definition transfers of sort of incredibly rare film footage and went and sort of scoured all kinds of things. And he and Ben Hendricks in stock footage assembled reels and reels and reels of stuff that had been stuck in stock footage over the years that was things like color footage of Walt as the Grand Marshal in the Rose Parade, stuff that I'd never, ever seen before. Um, all of those kind of things just go to, 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 to create a reality about Walt as a living person. When you see high-def footage of Walt Disney, and he looks like he's just right there, um, those things just go to reinforce the idea of Walt as a human being. Our story actually takes an emotional track 
And by the time you get to the final gallery within the museum, what our, our real goal and intent was, was to have people so emotionally invested in Walt's story that they would really feel something when he passes away. And I think we accomplished that goal as well. But it was, once again, through a mix of all of these kinds of elements from the most intimate and interesting little personal objects um, to terrific technological stuff like great high-definition video transfers. Well, when you talked before about the museum opening to critical acclaim, I wanted to say that you didn't, more importantly, I think, you opened to an emotional response from people because I know a number of people who have been to the museum, grown men who admittedly, freely, that, that they came out and they were crying and they were that touched by what they saw and that the five hours that they spent in there wasn't quite enough. And, and I want to sort of touch on that emotional aspect of it because when you said it smells like grandpa you know I got choked up I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna kid you because again it's it's that connection and and let me ask you about that is that I I get the sense that people seem to feel as though they have this personal connection to Walt Disney Uh, certainly 99.9 have never met him we've never lived during his lifetime why do you think that is why do you think this person that we've never met that really, you know, started this gives us all such a personal connection. When we hear that it smells like grandpa, we get that sort of type of response. Well, speak for yourself, Pipsqueak. I lived during his lifetime. <laughs> you got um, the goosebumps. I know you did. Well, you know, what? to tell you the truth, I think it's a fairly straightforward answer in the sense that Walt created a kind of culture that he invited us into through his filmmaking, through his television, through the music that he contracted, through all of these aspects in terms of the public arena and entertainment. But everything that he created makes some kind of emotional connection to people, which is why it has popularity, had the popularity, why it has resurgence and rebirth. So in, it's the greatest strength of the Disney mythology, the Disney company, this sort of legend, um, it's, it's the, the proprietary feeling that people have about the whole Disney thing because we have been created so many distinct ties to our own lives with them. It's a birthday at the park. It's, oh my gosh, I had that Mickey Mouse doll when I was a a three-year-old. On and on down the line. And the more in tuned to the Disney culture that you are, I think the greater the emotional reaction you have to Walt, if you've studied his life and his work, and the closer you feel to him, I think in large degree because you're inherently grateful for what that Disney connection has provided. I mean, I speak for myself on that. I'm grateful every day um, that this highly influential man, I mean, the, the three key adult male role models of my youth were Walt Disney and Richard and Robert Sherman. I mean, these were the men that I admired, like like fathers. And I, I just, I think that that's why people have the kind of emotional reactions they do in the museum, especially towards that last gallery. I have had people say, you are manipulative SOB because you created this gigantic hero for me who I finally got to meet in person and then you took him away. (laughs) And to a degree, that's what we wanted the reaction to be. Look, we finally introduced you to this man and let you get to know him. And then he goes away because that's what happened in real life. Mm -hmm. He was on the verge of so many things and then he was taken away. I've had people 
come up and say the the final gallery actually the the bad news that you get about Walt it's actually a simple little setting with a vintage television and stereo and I assembled a series of announcements combined with eyewitness recollections of that day December 15 1966 it's very understated it's very quiet and it's very affecting emotionally and I think the best thing somebody said to me said, they said, I love that little vintage sort of living room setup you've got there in the last gallery. I said, thank you. It's it's simple. Yes, you need a little vintage box of Kleenex on top of that TV, though. <laughs> so I just, I think that that's the essence of, of part of that success, particularly. It's It's interesting because it seems to be twofold. A similar reaction is had in people who really never have known Walt Disney beyond a brand name. And the other thing, you get a similar emotional reaction from people like you and me who have invested a lot of our life and a lot of our heart into Walt and his work. So it's interesting. I mean, I feel a degree of success on that level. The other success that I feel is all of the museum consultants that we ever talked to during the creation of the museum would say a museum of this size is, you know, an hour and a half experience. And I would sort of say, well, I don't think so. I mean, I know that just in the multimedia alone, I think all of the video screens, if you, if you watch them all are more than three hours of video and audio material, not to mention listening stations, exhibit artifacts, uh, documents, artwork. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, all great interactive stuff that Second Story did. And Second Story is a great company in Portland, Oregon, that did several interactive installations. A group in New York called Batwin and Robin did an en- enormous multimedia installation in one of the galleries and supervised and production managed all of the other multimedia that I did the content for. So there's just a ton of stuff in there. Anymore, I tell you, people, if you're a Disney fan, go when they open and leave when they throw you out. Mm-hmm. Because that's what the experience is. Most Disney fans, in one method or another, will spend the whole day there. Right. Um, and that's what my friends are telling me as they come back. They look at If you look at the Presidio on its face on the outside, you say, well, this, this can't be too big. I'll be in and out in an hour. And five hours later, my friend, a couple of friends said, you know, I still felt like I wanted to see more as he was wiping away the tears. And in a way, it's really the intentional thing about its design and and kind of a terrific thing is the museum is built in, in, it's almost, I I use the tired reference, it's an onion. Because one way the way the museum is laid out it in essence depends on what you react to. If, you're, if your perception of the world is visual, or if your perception of the world is auditory, or if your perception of the world is kinesthetic and, and is tied more to sort of the way things feel as you go from room to room, if you're a museum person who loves to read all of the text, for instance, you'll be there all day. Because um, J.B. Kaufman and Don Perry and a whole bunch of other people contributed to and wrote all of the text panels and caption information. Michael Labrie, the director of, of the collection and his group, um, you know, selected the things that were from the museum's collection as well as the materials that we were able to borrow from the Disney. I mean, there's just layer after layer after layer of ways to go through this material and glean more information about the subject matter. So, I think you could seriously go through the entire museum. I mean, here's the honest-to-God truth. I still have never been through the entire museum in its final structure. I have never had the real guest experience where I set aside a full day and actually I know what everything is, I know where it is, I know what's in the material, et cetera, et cetera, but I've never taken the full day to actually go through and and experience it the way you do as a visitor. 
If you're looking for somewhere to go with Jeff, I'll, I'll volunteer. I'll volunteer myself for the day, and we can go together. Well, you know, the other fun thing for me is I've gotten to take people on tours through the museum that have been just so amazing and so terrific. You know, I've, um, gosh, a couple months ago I took uh, Stephen Daldry, you know, of Billy Elliot and the Reader, and I took Stephen Daldry through. I took Michael Shabon and his son through. Um, I took Armistead Maupin on a tour through the museum. I've done, you know, events there with Tommy Kirk, and I'm doing one next month with Richard Sherman. Uh, you know, it's just, it's such a great place to, to be able to sort of show off. You know, people are just, and, and the thing is, people react to it so beautifully that you just kind of have that self-satisfaction that said, oh, thank God we did it right. Mm-hmm. You know, at least we did them injustice. Because, you know, Diane was just simply tired of people getting the story wrong. Focusing on aspects of the story that really didn't have to do with her dad. Right. Um, and I can imagine, I can imagine how frustrating it has been for her over the years, especially when you have all this, you know, stuff coming out like the, the Hollywood Dark Prince and, and, uh, <laughs> Cast Walt as Satan's best pal, and by the same time you have that other side where you know Walt is made into an angelic figure. Walt, Diane calls him Master Saint. You know he's made into someone who is incapable of of error and and uh, and human foible and weakness, and she didn't want that either. So I feel like we really struck a balance in presenting in a way, presenting his story as it could only be told by his family and friends. Who are the ones that needed to tell it? You're right, needed to tell it properly, because any book that's been written about Walt, anything that's been said about Walt from other people, are not those that lived with him, that grew up with him, that saw him when he came home from work at night. So they are the ones to convey the fact that Walt was, and he is, he, he was human. He was human. He was yeah. he was certainly able to make mistakes and made his mistakes and learned from them and moved on. So in, in terms, I mean, it's the magnum opus of my career, to tell you the truth, in terms of my Disney career. Um, there'll never be for me another chance like that, another another blank page like that to which I'm invited to, to scrawl my own marks. And I don't think that in a professional sense, I have ever worked on anything that's been quite so soul-satisfying. And I hope and pray there will be something again, but I'm not making any bets on it. Well, you're able to look back on it with a sense of of pride and satisfaction, and and you're right, there is nowhere almost to go from there, and you can always look back at that and, and know... Uh, you know, as part of the Jeff Curdy legacy, you are you did something that was in, incredibly important, not to certainly minimize the other work that you've done as well. Well, in another way, it's a way that I've been able to make a palpable tribute to somebody who, on several different occasions, probably saved my life. I mean, from a very uh, a not terribly happy childhood that was in many ways rescued by my ability to go hide in my room and read Walt Disney Comics Digests, you know, to, you know, the professional success that I've been able to have because of the company he left behind. Um, It feels good to be able to honor him accurately and thank him in my own way. And that's what I was going to ask you. Did you look at this, separating it from the professional job that you had to do, did you look at this almost as a personal way to say thank you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the other great thing is it's there. It's, 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 a, it's a, I mean, the doors are open there right now. People are going in and having that experience. They may be young people who are being inspired for the very first time by understanding that it really was a man and not 
a brand name on a video box. It may be people who grew up not really recognizing how much of their entertainment culture came from one guy. It may be people like I've had so many people that I have encountered who say, you know, I worked at the studio in the 60s. Or I worked at the studio, you know, in the last dozen years of Walt's life or what have you. Who say, you just, you really kind of captured it. Well, I can and, tell you. Know, when I say, I mean, I'm, I'm going there on, on Tuesday, actually. I've got some meetings to go to up at the museum and there I'll be. I'll do what I always do and walk through the exhibit and look at stuff and <laughs> notice things that I didn't ever notice before, uh, you know. So it is kind of a, a, a lasting tribute in, in that sense. I, uh, I actually went there before it opened. I happened to be in San Francisco on business, and I felt compelled to drive to the Presidio and just sort of look at where it was going to be. I You know, it was sort of my, uh, I kind of felt drawn to it. And now I've got this desire to make the pilgrimage. I want to sort of go out there specifically for nothing else but to see the museum and not sort of shoehorned into uh, a weekend trip where I'm doing other things, but it, it sort of be the focus of the trip. And uh, Well, I, ideally and ultimately, I think that's where we're going to get in terms of particularly the Disney fans understanding that I think a lot of people have, have said, oh, I'm going to go to Disneyland and, oh, I think I'm going to jet up to San Francisco for a, an afternoon mm-hmm. and do that museum. <laughs> And trying to get them to change their view of, of, it, of, the, of the experience and realize that it is, in essence, what you said. It's sort of a pilgrimage in the, in the sense that it is a destination all its own. It's not like some funny little, little exhibit in the lobby of something else. It is its own thing. And it has been designed with the intent that it should uh, capture your attention for an extended period of time. And, you know, when when... Um, Paula Sigmund Lowry and myself and Walter and several other people were sort of going through the layout of the museum. The intent really was to create a progressive story. You've, we realized, of course, that the, uh, because of the historic structure it's in, the building it's in, there was absolutely no way to free flow the galleries and have any of it make sense so that the, the museum itself has to be a, a, a thing with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, so, I mean, there was a lot of, of, of thought given to how people progress through the space as it relates to the story that's being told. And it, it, it is an experience. It is a destination. It is a place to go in and of itself for itself and not feel like you spent an awful lot of money on an airplane ticket to go to something that was, you know, not that big a deal. I think people are finding quite the opposite. A lot of people are telling me, um, I don't know why it took me a year to get there. Um, especially my friends in Southern California. I mean, geez, if you want to get in your car, it's a five hour drive to get up to San Francisco, go after work on Friday and (laughs) spend Saturday and Sunday in the museum, go home Sunday night, you know? Well, I think it's it's probably a bit of maybe awareness, misunderstanding, confusion maybe about what it is. And then now as, as the word is starting to spread about what type of experience it really is, uh, I think people are becoming much more aware. And if the pilgrimage is, is up the coast or across the country, they are starting to make it. And uh, I being one of those people. Well, get off it, man. <laughs> this year. On a plane, on a plane. In San Francisco now. We will finish this interview in person. Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to try and make the most awkward segue possible as we talk about, again, the the magnum opus of your career and something so important like the Walt Disney Family Museum. I, I do want to talk about your latest book. And the only way I can think about somewhat awkwardly segueing there was it's the Disney Dream, it's called Welcome Aboard, The Creation of the Disney Dream. It's got a lot of the history of the Disney Cruise Line and the Dream. And in some distant way, Jeff, you know, we can kind of relay this back to Walt Disney, who he and Liz, he and Lillian obviously 
enjoyed cruising. We've seen a lot of pictures of them um, on transatlantic cruises from way back when. Well, you know what? That was one, one of probably three of the more awkward segues in history. <laughs> but, fear, but fear not, because to tell you the truth, you look at anything. You look at anything that's, I think, successful in Disney, and particularly successful with Disney fans, and you draw a fairly significant straight line back to that guy with the mustache. What was his name? I don't know. Was he important? <clears throat> What's interesting is you get always down to these foundational principles that were laid out by Walt anyway. Um, part of what I talked about in the story of of telling the creation of the Disney dream is that a great many of their philosophical underpinnings do actually go back to Walt from things like, for instance, the section on restaurants. I draw the line that actually that's kind of a Disney thing because Walt started off with his commissary and his brand new studio as part of not just getting something to eat, but creating an environment that was hospitable food that was high quality these were ideas he then carried through to Disneyland and then were carried through continually to all the Disney parks and resorts and then on to the cruise line, which is quality and value and uniqueness. These sort of fundamental ideas draw their line back to Walt. Um, the idea of, of you look at the functions of the cruise line. It's like everything that Disney does, except it's all in one box that floats. It's entertainment, it's recreation, it's um, food service, it's attractions, it's a hotel, it's guest service. It's everything Disney does, all in one place, and you get to go places too. So, on a, a sort of on a large scale, the Disney Cruise Line really is sort of uh, a Walt-centric idea. Um, it's one of those fundamental ideas that, that sort of grows out of the company every now and then where you go, hey, this makes a lot of sense. Now, of course, the other thing is with the Disney dream growing out of the existing Disney Cruise Line with the magic and the wonder was the same idea of there's no reason in the world they couldn't have just yanked down the blueprints for the magic and the wonder and said, here, make two more. But that's not exactly the way they're built there. And the whole notion is, um, and in the book I relate it to, Walt's stories, you can't top pigs with pigs. Mm -hmm. um, the whole notion that if you've been there and done that, how are you going to galvanize people and get them interested and excited and have them feel great about what they're doing if you're just reproducing something that's already been done? The interesting thing about the dream and the idea of, of upsizing and creating a more massive scale, uh, the thing I said to people over and over again when I was on the ship was, it's really as simple as this. The magic and the wonder are Disneyland. And this is the magic kingdom at Walt Disney World. There is the same attention to detail, the same exquisite design, the same thoughtfulness about the guest experience. This is simply just done on a scale that's larger and has more grandeur and more of an epic quality. You know, stepping back to the theme park example, I used to say, hey, you know, it's as simple as this. Disneyland is singing in the rain and Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World is Hello Dolly. They're just different... <laughs> They're, they're, they're different scales of, of sort of, of similar storytelling. Um, the thing that's great about the dream, though, is in creating grandeur and creating these much larger uh, ships, it's almost like the, it, it does, it's interesting because it doesn't feel forced and it doesn't feel like it's, it's, uh, um, it's obvious, but there has got to have been tons and tons of attention made to continue to make spaces humane and intimate and scale them in a way that was not off-putting or cold uh, in getting larger. Um, so the dream, of course, took all of sort of these lessons learned from the ongoing operation of the wonder and the magic 
applied a lot of those sort of simply operational and guest experience lessons to uh, a much different ship design. Um, I mean, the result is just amazing. Well, I think you had an interesting analogy with the theme parks because, you know, look, Disney changed the cruise industry when the magic and the wonder launched a far cry from the big red boat back in the 80s. And I think now they've they've done it again with the dream. When you look at things like the enchanted art and the kids area and the virtual portholes and the aqueduct, all things that hindsight being 2020, you say, oh, that just makes sense. How come nobody thought of that earlier? Well, and here's the reason why I think nobody thought of that earlier is because there's no, there's absolutely no bottom line impact of enchanted art. These, I mean, for for you for you listeners to Lou Mangiello who do not know <laughs> what enchanted art is, these are essentially they appear to be static paintings or artworks that hang in various lobbies and and. Uh, areas around the dream, but as you pass them or stand to look at them, they actually animate and come to life, whether it's um, Mickey and Minnie in Hawaiian Holiday, or it's a scene from Dance of the Hours in Fantasia, or Bambi and Thumper uh, and Flower. Um, They're amazing. They're technologically innovative. They are a complete surprise and there's absolutely no reason for them to exist other than they are very cool. People adore them. My two-and-a-half-year-old thinks that every picture should do this. <laughs> he gets very upset when he goes by framed things anymore, and they don't go. He'll point to a, a, a static painting and say, Go, Daddy! <laughs> Well, no, this painting doesn't go, honey. The ones on the, what he calls the Mickey boat. Mickey boat. Yes, those are, those are special on the Mickey boat. But once again, there's no profit motive to them. They just are. Um, you know, Joe and Cicero and his group at Walt Disney Imagineering figured out lots of cool stuff that they could do and did it add significantly to anybody's, uh, uh, you know, balance sheet at the end of the day. Cumulatively, yes, but in a very Walt Disney kind of way, they aren't something you can put on as a line item and say, you know, X number of guests spent 38 more cents per day because we had enchanted art. Um, The motive was just that kind of great, pure joy of, Look what we can do. Look how we can make this even more fun. And look how people are reacting. Uh, I mean, look at how people, this is what people are talking about. When I, look, when I came off the ship the first time, um, I've been fortunate I've been on it twice so far. The two words that came to mind was technology and surprises because it was one of those unexpected, you're right, experiences that you did not look for but very much enhanced your trip. What, did, what about you, Jeff? Did you have any sort of surprises for you personally about the dream, maybe o- over the magic and wonder? Here's the thing. What's interesting to me is I'm going back on the wonder in October um, for my birthday because I'm very old this year. <laughs> um, and the wonder's now out of San Pedro, so it's a little closer for me to get to. But I still love the magic and the wonder, and I don't sort of, I don't, I don't look forward to the day when they decide they're going to put enchanted art and do this kind of. I'd, I'd love them for them to carry over some of the more detailed elements. Um, you know, the I love the new mu- background music tracks have been updated. Not that I worked on that and helped to uh, do research on background music tracks. Oh wait, I did. Um, <laughs> Little things like that would make that. I love the magic and the wonder the way they are because that's what they are. But in going on the magic, the the things that were surprising to me were how you could take the spaces that they had 
recognizing they're so much larger than the magic and the wonder, and yet they don't feel overstated. They don't feel, they don't lack intimacy. Mm-hmm. That's something that sort of perpetually surprised me, going through the sort of little shopping area and recognizing, oh, holy smokes, they've got like six stores here instead of two. But it doesn't feel like it's an overstatement. Um, the same the same thing held true for me with, with all of the public spaces. It was like going into the Buena Vista Theater. It still felt like the Buena Vista Theater on the Magic and the Wonder. It just happens... It's larger. It's got a, a a sort of a an upgraded and and different. I won't say better because they're different rooms, but it's got sight line improved. It's got, it's got great seats. Mm-hmm. It's got fantastic, comfortable seats with cup holders, um, which of course is what makes or breaks a good theater. Cup holders. Um, but I think the surprise for me was, except in particular cases where I think that grand statement was important, like the grand atrium, they were actually very circumspect about sort of keeping it reined in. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you ought to. And I think it was the combination of both this, this, show, this great sort of spectacular show, and the restraint not to overstate it that makes it, to me, creatively work so well as a passenger. Um, You know, the idea that they sort of let you discover enchanted art um, is pretty cool. I like the way they've sort of externalized and made more efficient the children's spaces, because my oldest boy is absolutely nuts for the club, the Oceaneers Club and the Oceaneers Lab. He will go mental when he sees the ones on the <laughs> on on the dream. Um, but you know, a lot of that is because on the Magic and Wonder they were in such uncharted territory. Nobody had ever done anything like that before. I mean, as I recall, they even added the nursery, the 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 Flounders uh, Reef. They even added that after the Magic and the Wonder sailed because they had no realization that there would be a call for such a thing on a cruise ship. I think I'm right in my memory of that. I think where where the nursery is next to the Buena Vista Theater on the Magic, it was a, I think it was a galley before. Right, right I think you're right. But now, of course, they've got the It's a Small World nursery, which is a sort of a large, spacious, fully tricked out, you know, but, you know, once again, who knew back then um, when they were, I mean, and to tell you the truth, they've continued to evolve those things. I know at least on the magic, I've never been on the wonder actually, um, but on the magic, they have, you know, sort of altered and moved and rearranged things as time's gone on during dry docks and renovations based upon simply the fact that nobody had any idea how these things would actually be used when the ships were being designed. They went, well, we'd like to have a room that does this, but until they try those programs with actual passengers, how did they know? Right. So when, they, when I say they sort of take a page from what they've already learned and applied it to the dream, in, particularly in the kids' spaces, their focus and concentration on teens and tweens. Um, you know, I noticed on the magic, uh, we were on the magic in December, and I noticed that there's a lot of teen and tween gathering in lobby spaces. And to be honest, I think it's kind of become a problem for um, what they refer to now as the classic ships, the magic and the wonder, um, that they don't have larger and more larger spaces and more activities for teens. Um, I just I don't think that they've got the square footage that they actually would like to have on the on the two original ships. Well, they've certainly taken care of that in you know in the dream. I mean, it's just it's humongous and purpose designed spaces for all the different age groups. It's just something they did. Well, I mean that's that's the you know the dilemma when you 
brave new territory and you're the first ones to do these things, the only people you have to learn from are yourselves because nobody else has done it yet. And, and that's always been a hallmark of Disney is being able to learn and reinvent. And certainly, like you said, they've taken those what they've learned from the magic and wonder and improved upon them greatly uh, on the dream. That was very much something I recognized as well. It was very familiar in the spaces were familiar, but again, there were little tweaks that uh, were welcome improvements as well. Um, You know, I have to ask you what, uh, and you could just say, Lou, I can't tell you what's next, but what, what's next? What is next for Jeff Curdy and, and really all of us who are Jeff Curdy fans? For me, I am, I think, well, let me see. I am currently developing a new book project with a former collaborator who I have already done a book with, and I'll leave it at that because I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about it. So there's a book project coming up. Um, I'm continuing to work as a content consultant with the Walt Disney Family Museum. I'm going up there for uh, a series of meetings next week and simply working to bring my annoying nosiness and my expertise to sort of continue to help uh, supplement their uh, programs, their communications, their, you know. And, you know, I've, I've done several um, postings for the uh, museum's blog um, and continue to sort of be involved in and and be passionate about what goes on in the museum as a as an ongoing and living entity. Um, oddly enough, the current culture of the Disney Company doesn't particularly buy what I have to sell anymore. Uh, in the sense that publishing as a whole and Disney publishing specifically um, simply doesn't do the kinds of things like, you know, Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends and and those kinds of books that have since the world began and things like that that I've done in the past. So currently don't have anything cooking in terms of book projects. Um, kind of looking at a couple of different film documentary things, but, you know, not, interestingly, not a whole lot in the pot. Um a couple of things I am working on, I'm developing some of my own projects that actually aren't Disney. So I'm working on uh, developing a novel and a kid's book that was actually inspired by my oldest boy who came at me one day and started telling me about this crazy character. And I thought he was getting it from books at school or a story or a movie, but in researching it, he's just made this incredible character up out of his, you know, incredibly active four and five year old mind. So, um, that's actually going to be a book that he and I collaborate on, so to speak. Um, it's structured in such a way that each of us has sort of a voice in it and we carry the story through in, uh, alternating chapters. Um, but it's sort of a fantasy story and it involves sort of a great super villain and all kinds of weird goings on and peculiarities and, it has a lot to do with um, sort of, of uh, talking about and, and addressing the way that parents and their kids interact and communicate. Hmm. Um, you know, sort of the, the grown-ups versus kids thing that's been going on since time immemorial. <laughs> um, I'm writing a novel um, that's uh, about the process that we've gone through in terms of uh, one of our adoptions was particularly difficult and rife with so much crazy stuff that nobody would ever believe it. So I decided to write it down and figured if nobody's ever going to believe it, I'm going to write it as a novel anyway. So <laughs> um, I'm working on a, uh, a script for a stage show. Um, can't really talk about that one either. And I'm kind of living a nice, quiet life in the woods on Whidbey Island, Washington, and raising three boys and got 14 chickens and five acres and fresh eggs at my house, folks. Um, and 
in many ways, I'm trying to figure out, I'm really kind of figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I just, I don't know. I, I leave myself open to a lot of this. And in some ways, I'm sure it drives people crazy that I don't have a particular plan. And, you know, um, on another level, I'm also sort of open and free to, to see what comes up. Well, I have to think after such a, a monumental project as we spoke about with, with the Family Museum, it may be almost hard to sort of, maybe you just don't know it yet, what your what your next dream project is, what it is that you really, if you had your way, could do. And maybe that just hasn't presented it to, yourself, to you as yet. Given the incredible good fortune I've had with sort of stuff showing up, I'm hoping that that trend continues, that stuff shows up. Um, and I think it will. I, I am sure it will. Um, and listen, you know, you could always come down to a book signing at my house. I can keep you busy with all the Jeff Curdy books that I own. <laughs> That'll give you, you know, a good week's worth of signing to do. I'd be happy to do that. I think that would be a really fun thing, actually. <laughs> come down to your corner of the world. Well, you know, and maybe we should figure out when you're going to come to San Francisco, and maybe I can come down there. And we can go and do that together. I would love it. I would consider it uh, an, an honor. Um, I think that would be a blast. It would be great. And I look forward to seeing you again. Uh, you know, some Disney fans are fortunate enough to come to some events. You were at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet last year. Hopefully you'll be back uh, again this year and people can I meet will. you. I actually have been talking to Don about the Mouse Meet for this year and trying to help out as much as I can and what kind of ideas I can help bring to the table and where I can use my gigantic and powerful influence <laughs> to uh, kind of make that a, a super extra fun thing. Well, so maybe that's what you should do. Come to Mouse Meet and then San Francisco from there. Absolutely. Listen, we'll make a uh, we'll make a weekend. We'll figure it out. <laughs> absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Jeff, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time and you sharing all these stories with us. Uh, everything that you've done and put together, and I was not kidding at the beginning when I said that your work truly has been influential on me, so on a very personal level, I want to thank you as well. And, you know, that's about the most satisfying thing of all, to tell you the truth. To know that you've been a positive influence on other people is just really a great thing. So I appreciate that, and I hope that you'll be sure to cut out all the swears and uh, <laughs> make it clean for the kids. I will, and I'll also direct people over to Jeff Curdy. That's K-U-R-T-T-I dot blogspot dot com. I will link to it in this week's show notes. All right. Thank you, sir. All right, Jeff. Listen, thank you. Seriously, uh, thank you very much for your time. I, uh, I cannot tell Anytime. you how much Anytime. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again to my very special guest, Jeff Curdy. Again, I'll put information in this week's show notes at wdwradio.com in the podcast section about Jeff, his books, and how you can come out and meet him at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet on June 25th in Linwood, Washington. I'll also put more information about DisneyMeet.com. There you can find out more about all of our WDW Radio Meets of the Month and other Disney events around the country. Don't forget that I want you to be a part of the WDW Radio family and community and interact with me and the show in lots of different ways. You can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. You can also call the toll-free voicemail line at 888-703-2171. Be sure and visit wdwradio.com for lots more beyond just the podcast, including our daily blog post, photo galleries, our fun, interactive, family-friendly discussion forums, Lots of other ways you can connect with me at Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our free newsletter and lots more. On the site, you can also visit the WDW Radio store, and you can order signed copies of my uh, Walt Disney World trivia books. You can also order the audio guides to Walt Disney World on CD or download. You can also get a link over to Celebrations Magazine, which is at celebrationspress.com. It's a bi-monthly print publication put out by me and Tim Foster with the help of some wonderful contributors, covering everything from Walt Disney World, vacation planning, history, 
trivia, Wayback Machine articles, lots more. Our 17th issue is in the works right now, but you can order back issues, subscribe, and find out more again by visiting celebrationspress.com. In addition to the weekly podcast, be sure and come by every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.newscast.com. There, I do a live, interactive video news show covering Walt Disney World news, but you can be a part of the broadcast and discussion by talking about the news and asking and answering questions real-time in the chat room. And if you can't make it, that's okay. You can watch the newscast on our YouTube channel, on the blog, or by getting the audio in the iTunes feed over at WDW Radio. Don't forget this weekend, Saturday, May 21st at 11 a.m. is the next WDW Radio Meet of the Month. It's going to be over at Disney's Hollywood Studios at the Backlot Express. We'll get together, meet and chat for a little while, celebrate Star Wars weekends, and then maybe even take a group ride over on the newly opened Star Tours 2. For more information and to RSVP on our Facebook event page, again, visit DisneyMeets.com. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider for all your vacation planning needs. Not only do you get the best possible prices and discounts, but the amazing level of personal service that Becky Mankin and her team provide to all of their clients. If you're coming to Walt Disney World, maybe you want something with your own private pool, a spa, complete kitchen, game room, multiple master bedrooms, and more. All-Star Vacation Homes has two-bedroom condos, up to seven-bedroom homes. You can find out more by visiting their website at allstarvacationhomes.com. When you come down to Walt Disney World, be sure and visit Bongo's Cuban Cafe in downtown Disney. You get that feel of a 1950s Havana nightclub, live music, entertainment, indoor and outdoor seating, three bars, an express window, and some delicious food as well. You can check out their menu by visiting Bongo's Cuban Cafe, or again, go by and visit them in downtown Disney and Walt Disney World. And if you want to stay right in the heart of Walt Disney World, one of my favorite places to stay is the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin. They have 17 world-class restaurants and lounges, including Shula's, Kimono's, and Blue Zoo, which I love, the Heavenly Beds, Mandara Spa, a lot of special Disney benefits and special discounts and rates going on as well. You can check them out over at swananddolphin.com. Also, be sure and visit loumangelo.com to find out more about my private tours of Walt Disney World, consulting and speaking opportunities, and lots more. There is more coming for WDW Radio in the coming weeks and months. Looking forward to announcing a few more projects that I've been working on. But in the meantime, my friends, if you like the show, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share the link on Facebook or on other Disney discussion forums. And please come by and review the show and the free WDW Radio iPhone app over in iTunes. And finally, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day and week to tune in this and every week to the show. I really do appreciate it. So until next time, remember to start pursuing your passion and following your dreams. And when you do, always keep moving forward. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week, everybody. See ya. Hi, Lou. It's Jen Tremley from Bristol, Connecticut. Just wanted to say I just listened to this week's show, uh, show number 221 with your Jeff uh, Curdy interview for part one. Just wanted to say I really enjoyed it. And uh, again, what a what a great uh, interview. Um, I, to be honest with you, I've never heard of this gentleman. I've never um, had the opportunity to read any of his publications um, or see any of his work. And uh, after listening to his interview, I, uh, you know, just requested a couple of his books at my local library and definitely going to uh, look forward to reading them and possibly getting them for my, uh, my Walt Disney World uh, book collection that I have as well. I, I, just like you and everyone else, I'm sure, love reading and, and uh, finding anything about Walt Disney World or Walt Disney himself uh, in, in any avenue, whether it be parks or, or animation or characters or films. Uh, whatever the, the case may be. So just wanted to drop a quick uh, note and just say thank you again for everything that you do. And I uh, once again enjoyed uh, this week's show. And I hope to very soon meet you at one of the meet, meets of the month or another activity that you might be planning um, in the future. So keep up the great work and uh, have a great week. Hi, Lou. This is Billy Latta calling from a touch in New Jersey. I'm currently at Typhoon Lagoon right now here 
on an extended weekend vacation with my family. I uh, just wanted to call in, say that I listened to the latest episode, and it was excellent, as usual. Um, I wanted to make, take a note on episode 218 when you uh, interviewed Randy Noble about the Biomation. An excellent podcast that was. And I was really happy that you asked how he got involved, especially for those uh, people like myself who are in college who want to pursue a career later on in Disney. I just wanted to say thank you for uh, asking him that particular question. That was a delight to listen to. I'm um, having a great weekend. I'm sure that you guys are uh, making... Uh, your, your day and your stay uh, here at Disney over in the Contemporary. Uh, very fun and eventful as you're celebrating the 40th anniversary this weekend, I'm pretty sure. Um, I am staying in Bay Lake Tower, and Bay Lake Tower is magnificent. I am so glad it's, it's a DVC uh, resort from now on. And uh, it's just a great, great time that we're having here. There's so much I want to say, but uh, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to go and jump in the water for now. Hope you're having a good one. Bye.